Welcome to The Eventful Entrepreneur. I'm Roger Woodall, founder of the Bournemouth Sevens, the world's largest sport and music festival. With all events in 2020 grinding to a halt, I'll be bringing people back together, but in a different way. On this week's episode, I'm talking to a friend of mine, Anthony Block. Anthony has worked in the business of football since leaving university nearly 20 years ago. From working at Everton Football Club to landing every footy fan's dream job, touring the world with a Brazilian football team. He has so many cracking stories from behind the scenes. So here he is, Mr. Anthony Block. How you doing, Ant? Very good. Very good indeed. Good, mate. Good, good, good. Loving the shirts behind you. The old Brazilian home and away, is it? Yeah, they, they certainly add a bit of colour. Lovely, mate. Lovely, lovely, lovely. Well, what we'll do, we get straight cracking into it. Um, you've got a brilliant story to tell over the last probably 18, 20 years in business. I'd love to delve a little bit further back and how you got involved in sport and business. Certainly, certainly. Uh, well, I, I guess I first, my career in sport and business started at Everton Football Club. Back in 2003, it was, uh, I guess, a transformation from a placement year from university, uh, which uh, where I did a year's there in between my course. And then I, I kind of went straight into it, really. I, I became the assistant club secretary uh, as soon as I'd left university. And that was kind of a baptism of fire. Everton were going through some some organisational changes. And I kind of just sort of had, you know, I guess the, the, the side of football and, and business where it meets, sort of, you know, in the palm of my hands and kind of started to, to learn my trade there. Uh, I then did seven years at Everton uh, as the assistant club secretary and I had other roles sort of along that journey such as executive assistant to the board. Um, And then in 2011, I had the opportunity to join Blackburn Rovers as club secretary and head of football operations. So if I just hold you there on that one, the Everton, how did you get the Everton job? Uh, again, it was it was I was there as a as a as a university placement, and uh, not long after I'd started, there was some changes within the business. Uh, the chief executive had just left, uh, and the gentleman that I was working for at the time was sort of acting CEO for for six or seven weeks. And I think that, that pretty much at that time, I was there as a university student, just sort of in the way, and I kind of sort of just sort of made the, the role of assistant secretary as my own. There wasn't a, an assistant secretary at the time. And I guess just being in the right place at the right time and a, an extra sort of, you know, set of hands, sort of eager to learn. It was the timing more than anything. Amazing, mate. Amazing. And what university were you at at the time? Leeds. Oh, the, <laughs> the party university. Yeah, Love no, it. definitely. definitely. <laughs> so basically, you did a placement from Leeds Uni, went straight to Everton Football Club. You did a placement there. They they what they liked you so much. Did they offer you? Didn't they offer you like a full time not to go back to uni? Uh, so I did. I did part time during my final year at uni. I was sort of up and down the M62, sort of every other day, trying to sort of keep my keep my feet in at Goodison Park, knowing that there was a, a good opportunity at the end of it, but trying to sort of get my degree at the other side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what 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 club do you actually support yourself? Everton. Oh, you do support Everton. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh wow, dream dream job. No, definitely. It was. Uh, I must wow. say, it was. It was a good, a good period there. It was sort of right through the heart of the David Moyes era, uh, and, and there I say it probably sort of Everton's most. I wouldn't say success, success, but certainly our, our best period in, in recent years. Amazing. And what, who was there at the time? Is it Cahill, Cahill, David Arteta, Moyes, Lescott, Jagielka, Baines, oh, Tim wow. Howard? 
Yakuba, oh, wow. Sahar, so some some decent. Yeah, they were proper. They were they were proper good days, weren't they? Yeah, no, they were. Which is uh, it's sad to think of that from where we're, where we are at the moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And where, where when you were there, what years were you there between? Was it like two thousand three, two thousand four, two thousand eleven? Okay, and uh, Everton's a proper old school football club, isn't it? Yeah, no, certainly it's an extremely t- traditional football club. It's a uh, you know, I guess certainly the, the big sleeping giant at the moment of English football, but the you know the infrastructure is is fantastic. They've got fantastic training ground. Uh, the stadium still is 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 one of England's great venues, and hopefully, sort of in the next few years, there'll be a, a new stadium. But it is a it's a fantastic club. Amazing. And what have they got plans for a new stadium? Yeah, there's a there's a new stadium which I think was um, I guess pre-COVID. I think 2023, but I'm not sure whether that's going to sort of still be on track but there's a, a big new stadium sort of up Bramley Moor Dock Lovely What were you actually doing at the club when you were there? I guess the bridge between the business side of the club and, and the footballing side but the I guess the football administration departments look after all of the the administration off the pitch so player registrations player contracts transfers match day travel away travel uh, pre-season tours uh, UEFA competitions should they should they be applicable uh, and just all of the general day-to-day Governance and administration with Premier League, the FA, you know, I guess a, a lot of form filling. Happy days, mate. And were you involved in cutting any of the deals and transfers? A few of them, a few of them. Any any, any big guns you could tell us about? I guess more so at Blackburn when I when I had the role as club secretary. But at Everton, I, you know, there was a few deals that sort of when I got the opportunity to, I was sort of certainly during the summer periods where my boss used to take his holidays and what have you, and I'd kind of be. <laughs> sort of holding the fort and a couple of contracts would land. I think there was one summer we renewed contracts with Cahill and Arteta and I was kind of sitting there on the on the end of the phone to the chairman, sort of putting the final final bits to, to those contracts. So they were they were quite good memories. Fantastic, mate. And what's that? Like you said that's 2004, 2005, 2006, around there, was it? Around Cahill and all that? Yeah. I mean, it's obviously changed a lot over the years. What sort of, what sort of salaries were those boys on back then, roughly? Roughly. 20s, 30s, 40s a week? Yeah, in and around that. that, in and around yeah. that I think, you know, I guess my my sort of view on it now would be back in those days, and it certainly wasn't that long ago, your top sort of players at Premier League clubs were on sort of circa 50, 50 grand a week. And I would have thought nowadays that's that's probably double for those similar type players. Yeah. Wow, 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 wow. And how long were you actually there at Everton until you, start, until you made the next move? So seven years. Seven good. What made what made you uh, take the next step? Was it kind of you're done with Everton? It was it next opportunity, or uh, you know, I guess at the time it was a certainly a dream job. Um, going into work every day was a pleasure, and from from nowhere really, I got a, a very good opportunity to join Blackburn Rovers, who had I guess were a year into their takeover from from foreign owners, and I, I got the opportunity to be club secretary, and it was kind of a an opportunity I, I just couldn't turn down. And were they were they were they were Blackburn back then in the Prem? Yeah, yeah, they were. Oh wow! And who? And uh, so you got enticed by the new owners, or we did? We, did you get enticed by the old owners, and the new owners took over, or how, how did it work then? It was a it was a conduit working for, for the new ownership group. Uh, I'm not quite sure where they picked my name from, but uh, I received the call one day asking if I'd be interested. And I think before I knew it, I was on a on a flight to to Pune in India to meet the, the owners and I, I basically came back and had to sort of pen my resignation letter on the plane knowing that Blackburn sort of wanted me as quickly as possible. Wait, what a nice feeling that must have been. <laughs> yeah, different Amazing. times. 
Yeah, I bet they were. I bet they were. What was it like? Um, I remember. I remember those days. In fact, what was it? The chicken farmers, or were they seventy? <laughs> yeah. And what what was the story behind that? Uh, I guess it's you know I guess that was even now that was nine years ago, and you know the Venkies are still the owners of Blackburn. But I think I was. I guess I was there in their in their sort of second year. They they were a fascinating family, you know, extremely successful in their own industries in in Asia and parts of Europe. Um, and I think they they had an understanding that buying a Premier League football club was a, a, a fantastic opportunity and a, and a win win. Um, and they they you know, I guess they tried. They they had so many different opinions coming from from different sides. And I, I guess you know. As easy as it might sound, managing a Premier League and owning a Premier League football club is, is not easy. Things can go can go wrong and, and, and not so well very quickly. And unfortunately, the year I was there, they were relegated. Um, and you know, I guess that's when things can really start to start to change. But you know, they were they were really good people. They, they, yeah. they're, they're sort of you know their their money was in the right place and, and they wanted to succeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair play to them. But was they are they proper football people? Or were they chicken farmers want to get involved? Uh, one of the there was a family. It was two brothers and a and a, and a, and a sister. Uh, one of the brothers was a, had a sports and entertainment background, predominantly in India. Uh, but I guess you know, as a lot of foreign owners, they saw very much the bright lights of the Premier League. Yeah, and I guess it's difficult sometimes to to contemplate all, all of the various considerations and decisions and. I guess in, in, in Premier League, for certainly in top flight football, I guess in any country, it's very easy to get sucked in. Uh, and before you know it, you've got sort of contracts being offered to current players and mm. signings and, and what have you. And, you, you know, in the Premier League, there's a there's a certain ingredient to getting it right. And unfortunately, that year, it wasn't quite there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they are they still there now, are they? Yeah, the owners are still there. Um, I guess Blackburn haven't, haven't managed to come back to the Premier League yet. So they're eight years out now. And I think that just shows how how difficult it is once it does go wrong. Wow. It's, uh, it's a tough place to get back to. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting, isn't it, when you become a chairman of a footy club and you think it's bright lights and you're going to earn a load of money. And I remember having chats with Davy Gold, the, the West Ham chairman. He said to me, I said to him, I'd love one day to own West Ham, you know, when he's gone. And he said to me, he had a little whisper in my ear and he said, put 100 million quid aside, give 50 million to your family and give 50 million to the football club because you'll never see it again. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. certainly. And you know, there's not there's not many nowadays who are, who are making money out of owning a football club. Yeah, absolutely. So once you're, I guess they were come into the club feeling it was going to be we're going to stay in the prem. And as soon as you spiral out of the prem, obviously the money goes, the players' wages. They're still you're still high players. The players are still on high wages, I guess, for a few years. What's the what's the what's the next step for them if you can't get rid of the club, you can't sell the club? What what are the next steps you reckon for some family it's like that? Difficult, and I think for Venkies that was. Part of the problem, I guess, they had invested, you know, you know, quite a decent amount of money into the club, and mm. I think for them at the time it was a case of, you know, I, I had left sort of in and around that relegation period, but I guess, you know, to sort of, you know, throw, throw your cards in and, and kind of walk away is difficult. They wanted to sort of see the project through, but I guess it's, a, you know, a load of restructuring. All of a sudden, your your, your financial and transfer ambitions become very different. Uh, I guess on the field as well, technically, everything become you know, the objectives become very different. You know, playing in the championship is a totally different, different task. Uh, and I guess it is a case of of trying to, you know, I guess Blackburn had a couple of years after that that was that were really tough. It nearly saw them relegated again. And I guess it's just trying to find your feet really and trying to restructure the club on and off the pitch into a position that gives you a good chance to, to get back to the Premier League because that is the big prize. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you see a big? Did you see a big drop off in attendance from the Prem when they dropped down to the Championship? I think certain. Even so, during that year that I was there, the attendances was was fluctuating during the year. Um, but yeah, I think you know as soon as you drop out the Premier League, certain you know, some clubs it doesn't have a major impact. It can work the other way. Uh, but with Blackburn, definitely, you know, I guess fifteen years ago, Blackburn was a was a, was a stadium that was sold out every week. It's a it's a relatively new stadium. It was one of the first new build stadiums in England. Uh, and it was infamously known for being full every week because it's a yeah. small town, and you know the whole town followed the club. Um, and I mm. think they've, they've struggled in recent years with their with their attendance. It's a real shame, isn't it? But from from the days of what was it, Alan Shearer, Kenny Dalglish? Yeah, no, definitely. I'm sure, there's, what other names were in there when they won the Prem that Chris year? Sutton, Tim Shearer, Colin Hendry. Oh yeah, Tim Flowers. But you know they were. You know, I think some. And I guess you could say it goes back longer. But Blackburn, they they say were the first club that bought the Premier League title. Because they, you yeah. know, I guess, if you compare to what sort of others have done in, in recent years, they they certainly did pay pay for the pleasure. Yeah, and they had what was the old chairman called? I can't remember his name. Jack Walker. Jack Walker. What a legend he was. Yeah, yeah, absolute legend, mate. So we moved on. So we moved on from Everton, from university, seeing the opportunity, going in with Everton seven years, jumping over to Blackburn for a couple of years, and what was the decision? Why did you then decide, right, it's time to move move on from here? So, so I'd, I'd left Blackburn uh, and I was sort of looking at some different opportunities in the market, predominantly still in football. Uh, and I got a, a really strange call from a from one of the a CEO that I'd worked with at Everton who kind of asked me if I'd, I, what my Portuguese was like, which I, I said it was uh, pretty poor uh, to, to zero. He asked if I could speak any Spanish and I kind of said again the same. It's, language has never really been my thing and there was an opportunity at a London sports agency uh, who had just acquired the organisational and media and sponsorship rights to the Brazil national team. And they were looking for someone to come and to, to manage that project, to, to work with the, the CBF, who is the Brazilian, the equivalent to the, the Football Association in Brazil, to work with them on their technical programme, to commercialise uh, the, the new project which they had acquired. Uh, and yeah, I guess I, I'd sort of went down for a quick interview and got told that the first Brazil match was a few days later in New York. So I guess <laughs> what was what was to come for the next eight years sort of was put in front of me very quickly, which was, you know, jumping on a plane to New York to meet the Brazil national team who were playing in the, the MetLife Stadium in New York. And I guess that's when I kind of moved away from, from club football, which is a, a generally quite regimented process and, you know, a footballing calendar that Everyone understands with lots of rules and regulations to adhere to 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 the world of international friendlies, which is is, is very different, really. Wow, mate, what a dream job that is! It's like the Harlem Globetrotters of world football. Yeah, no, it, it certainly is. It's been it's been an amazing amazing eight years here, and uh, you know we've done some fantastic matches. It's you know, I guess from having a you know for the sort of ten years that I was at Blackburn and Everton collectively, you know, having a very administrative governance type role. I guess I certainly then went out into a more operational, hands-on, in the field, uh, and I I guess event delivery, uh, team logistics and and what have you. And yeah, it certainly sort of developed my skill sets. And, you know, you you find that sort of when you're working sort of out out of the UK, sort of in the field, it's it's a very different game. So tell me the business model. How does the actual business model work? The company you work for, do they own the rights to every single game? Do they pay Brazil a fee for every single game and then... And then how do the company you work for, your company, pitch? How do they earn on top of that? So, so I, I guess the deal in, in, in simple terms is we had a, 
we started in 2012. Uh, that's Pitch International, who I, I work for. A 10-year contract with the CBF. Uh, and that was to commercialise and organise all of their friendly matches. So the contract that we have with them provides them a, a, an exclusive agreement that we are their operator. Um, we obviously pay, pay pay the federation for that contract. And then I guess it's our task to, I guess, first and foremost, deliver international friendly matches in accordance with the FIFA calendar because there's, there's set dates when friendly matches are to be played. Uh, we have to deliver the operational element for the team, the operational elements for the match itself, uh, and commercialise that as best as we can through 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 deriving revenues, through ticketing, through sponsorship and through media rights. Wow. So there's no risk for the Brazil Federation. It's literally they'll be paid X amount of millions per game. Then the risk is on your shoulders to go and get sell the tickets in the stadiums, get sponsorship. And also on top of that, you've got to make sure that you've got their flights and accommodation all sorted. Yeah, no, that's pretty, pretty much it. I'm sure there's more to it than that, but there's, uh, that's sort of to break it down into, into simple terms. Yeah. So where, did you, where was your first, when you, when you moved from Blackburn, did you come straight down to London and set up in London and said, right, I'm down here now, I'm, I'm all yours, Pitch International, let's go. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't think it would last too long, but I, um, yeah, I finally, having sort of looked at different opportunities sort of for a long time of moving to London, it finally happened. Um, and then, yeah, I've been in London now for eight years. Give us a heads up of that first year. How was the first year dealing with Brazilian national team? What legends were in that team at the time who you were dealing with? Were you flying back and forward with Brazil? Was the communication easy with the, with the federation? Was it highly organised? Just give us a kind of overview how you felt in that first year. Well, that, that first year when, when, um, when, when I started was 2012. So it was just under two years before the World Cup in Brazil. Uh, and I guess the regulations have changed a little bit now, but in... In 2012, the team that was hosting the World Cup didn't have any qualifying matches or any arranged matches before the World Cup. So we basically had 19 months straight of having to arrange Brazil-friendly matches on the FIFA dates. It's slightly different now. For instance, Russia, who hosted the 2018 World Cup, they were put into a dummy group as such. So they had matches arranged for them. But when we started, we had, we had I think, 20 matches to arrange for Brazil before the 2014 World Cup. Um, and that was, you know, I guess a really intense period. There's obviously trying to trying to balance from our side was a, a new contract that we, you know, I guess we had the expectations to, to to make a great success from. But you also had the the CBF who were obviously very very, uh, you know, t- took a lot of attention to their preparation for the World Cup. So it's, I guess, always part of what we do is trying to find that right balance of delivering technically a, a good location, good training facilities, and good opposition. And obviously making sure it matches back with the commercial elements of that in terms of ticketing, sponsorship, and, and, and you try and find the, the perfect ingredient to, to, to you know, keep everyone happy. So I think my first game was, was in New York uh, against Columbia. Uh, I'm trying to think some of the names. The, the names back in those days were, were really good. The, the manager was, was Scolari, uh, oh, which, was, which was, you know, I guess, a really yeah. good name from the past to being at Chelsea before and obviously back in Brazil when they won the World Cup. And there was some of the players still in and around the team was amazing. Ronaldinho, Kaká, Rubinho. Uh, so, they, you know, just at the beginning of our, of our, of our contract, we, we saw, you know, it was all those, you know, those real names from, of Brazilian football that you, you sort of look, up to, look, look back to now and think, wow, they were, they were the players. Uh, and that first, you know, I think you mentioned about the organisational parts of it. That, that first Brazil game, is, it was kind of, a, I arrived in, in New York at JFK and, you know, you're sort of sitting there looking at what, what times the players are arriving and making sure that cars are being sent for them. 
Uh, I think to add add a little bit into that, it was just after the big storm of New York. So we had difficulties with hotel bookings, transport, the whole of New York had just sort of, I've forgotten which storm it was, but it had just, um, just sort of come through the, 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 the two weeks of that storm. So the, the match was sort of, uh, you know, was it on or was it not? We had to, you know, kind of get, make sure, you, know, as you can imagine when you're, you're checking into a hotel and you've sort of got yourself to look after, it's kind of, it is what it is and away you go. We have like five people coming in with all these different requirements of meal room and meeting room and making sure this one's in this type of room and the players can sort of, you know, move freely from, from their bedrooms down to the team bus and the kit truck leaves on time. And this was all, you know, I was kind of two, three days in. Wow. This was even before I'd got to the stadium where I was met with a, with an AstroTurf pitch and getting told by the guys at the stadium, the grass is arriving in three days, two days time from Boston and we, we, we lay it all down. I'm sitting there thinking, wow, this is this is not what I'm used to. Usually you get to a stadium and the one thing that you can be be sure about is there's grass, the on, the, there's grass <laughs> in the middle. I'm sitting there watching these, watching the sort of seat where, where all the grass is being sealed together. And yeah, it was it was quite an eye-opener because you know, I guess a, a friendly match, an international friendly match, doesn't doesn't fall under the same governance as, as that of a Premier League game or a UEFA competition. It, it kind of is, you know, you, as long as you are adhering to, to the rules of the stadium uh, and the federations participating are happy, you know, there's not, you know, there, obviously the match officials are appointed by by FIFA and, and they and they turn up, but there's, there's no one sort of making sure that all of the different elements come together. It's kind of, you know, it's kind of assumed that there is a, there's a match host or a match promoter or a match organiser appointed to do that job. And I guess it was a a kind of a reality check when I realised that person was me and would be yeah. for, for the next <laughs> several years. So what? So did you did you fly to Brazil to bring the squad of seventy five out to New York, or did you meet them in New York? No, we, I, we we've always generally the the delegation and two or three of the players come from Brazil, and obviously a lot of the players come from different different destinations. You know, it's one of those elements that's always quite interesting. Right at the start of an international period of Brazil, it's. Uh, I guess I wouldn't say, yeah, I guess organised chaos. If you think of an England match, for instance, they all meet up at St. George's Park or what have you and they're generally all just jumping in a car and driving from Liverpool or Manchester or London. For Brazil, you've got a couple of players coming in from China, one from Ukraine, one from Russia, 12 from Europe, one from Brazil, <laughs> one from Argentina and everyone kind of just does over a 36-hour period, all meet together in one city. So it's crazy at the airport with different collections and you sort of get them into the hotel and then they sort of join up as the squad and, you know, four days training, a match and a few more days training and another match. So it's it's kind of chaotic. Yeah, it sounds it, but good fun, eh? So what is it? So you're there. So give an example. So in New York, what was the capacity there on that first game and why Columbia and not yeah, US? My stadium was 90,000 and I think, you know, Jesus. I think we had a we had the issues because of the, the storm that I mentioned. I think there was about 35,000, which was at the time was deemed as a, an absolute success the fact that the whole of New York was sort of a bit you know turned upside down on the on the back of that storm. Yeah, yeah. And how how would you go in there? Would you go in as obviously you're saying we're going to bring the Brazilian team, you're paying the Brazil team to be there. Everyone's happy on that front. The risk for you guys now is to fill a stadium. How do you go about filling a stadium if you're not actually on if you haven't got your hands on deck actually in New York itself? Do you get a promoter in or do you work with other companies or we've worked in a variety of different ways. We've we've worked with I guess a third party promoter who comes in with us to the stadium. We've worked with the stadium themselves who can, act, you know, I guess, whereas a, a sport, you know, a lot of venues don't often sort of act as promoters. 
when you're sort of offering Brazil around, some venues can't help but chance but think, you know what, there's there's money to be made there. So we've had a lot of venues take on take on the partnership and take on the risk with us. Um, but we've promoted it ourselves. You know, I think part of the the, the uh, attraction to Brazil is it's, you know, I think certainly whether it's debatable or not, but one of the biggest sporting brands in the world and taking Brazil into any any region that you do it, it generally opens eyes. Um, so, you know, it is, it's putting a lot of manpower into marketing, into the PR, working with CBF to, to make sure we're generating the right content that, that, that we can put out on all the various different channels to try and attract people into the game. Uh, yeah. And, you know, when you're working with some of the stars that Brazil have, it's, you know, more often than not being, you know, quite a, quite a good challenge, but we've created some really good success from it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing. Any of those stars, uh, drama queens? Uh, not or really. They're pretty cool. The mentality of the Brazil players, I, I found, is, is always one of the most amazing things. They are, you know, I guess a lot of these players grow up in Brazil, get to sort of 15, 16, 17. They're all, some of them playing together at the Brazilian clubs. They're all playing together in the Brazil youth ranks, sort of under 17s, under 19s. And then, quite amazingly, they all just disappear around the world. Uh, and, and when they come on to international duty, it is really their chance to to get back together and sort of, you know, play, you know, they're all playing together as mates. It's kind of different if you think around in the European sort of the setup of things where these players are, you know, a lot of them play together at clubs. They're, they're certainly playing together in the same league. If you look at the England squad there, they're pretty much all in the Premier League. So they're seeing each other every couple of weeks here or there. Whereas, you know, with Brazil, some of them, they do go from international period to the next without seeing each other. So it's, uh, you know, they, and they've got a, a real, I guess a real, culture of playing for the Brazil national team is is the ultimate, ultimate objective in their career. Uh, it's mm. above anything else. And, you know, I think that creates a really good team dynamic and, and team philosophy that they, they're they there and they they know that they're representing, you know, Brazil, you know, a country of over 200 million people. It's, a, you know, the biggest honour that they can have. And they've won the what, World Cup five times, is it? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Quite wow, a while wow. now. Wow. Nearly 20 years without one. I guess, it, yeah, by Qatar, it'll be 20 years without one. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice sort of in, in the last year of, of our current contract with them, if they could if they could win that, so we can say that we've worked with the, with the work, we've worked with World Cup winners at the time. Yeah. So, you've been there, you, you've been doing this for eight years solid, sit, sitting with the Brazilian World Cup team or the squad going around to different countries all around the world, putting on matches. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, how lucky do you feel? Uh, I guess it's easy to say it's all relative, but no, it's been a it's been a privilege, you know, to take Brazil to all these different countries to to sort of be to an extent embedded within their organisation. You know, I get I guess I play quite a pivotal role in what their where their matches will be played, uh, who they'll be played against. You know, I took a really big role in their pre World Cup training camp and preparation before Russia in two eighteen. We we took them to Tottenham Hotspur's new training facility, and that was very much a you know an idea that we thought of here in London of what would be a perfect preparation for them before going to Russia. So yeah, it's uh, it's, it's it's been extremely exciting, you know. I guess um, you know extremely satisfying. It's a, it's been a really good project, and obviously to work with Brazil is a it, it is a great opportunity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give us give us an example of some of the countries that you've taken them to. Wow, um, we've done games in Brazil. Uh, we've done games in North America, so right across the US, New York, Miami, LA, Washington, um, Denver. Done games in Toronto, London, Paris, Berlin, Porto. Uh, moving south, we've done 
Johannesburg. We've done Singapore, South Korea, China, Australia. Um, I'm trying to think where I'll be missing out. Arabia, Abu Dhabi. Um, must be a few more in Europe. I think I said uh, Prague we've done. So, you know, pretty much every continent. I've uh, probably missed a few there in Europe and probably a few cities in the US as well. But we've, we've certainly been east, west, uh, north and south. Unbelievable. Um, what about Japan? No, we've not done Japan. Okay. Uh, Hong Kong we've done. Uh, we've done three games against Japan. Uh, we played Japan, interestingly, in Lille in France. Uh, we did one game in Poland and we did another game in Singapore. Uh, but no, we've not managed to get to Japan yet. Amazing. Who, had the, who, who saw the opportunity? Who was the entrepreneur who saw the opportunity to say, right, I'm going to go and offer the Brazil football team £2 million a game or whatever it may be to say I'm going to take them around the world and have the balls to say... Yeah, we'd love this contract for ten years because that's that's a that's a uh, that's a that's a ballsy move. Yeah, I guess it was just. I, I guess I joined just after the contract had been done, but I guess it was it was the partners of the company pitch um, who, who saw that opportunity. Uh, they were, I guess, working with with, with with other groups to sort of identify the, the availability of, of the rights. Uh, but it would have been the, the company's partners that, that saw that. Wow. Unbelievable, amazing, amazing. What's the, uh, if you were to pick out of all those games that you've done, which one or which three really stand out for packed audience, atmosphere, ticking every single box? You're sitting in the, you're probably in the best seat of the house there, halfway pitch on the halfway line, looking out and going, yeah, we're smashing this. There must have been a couple of, couple of, couple of games. You know, I guess there's, there's certainly the, the big games in Europe that we've done, but I guess it would probably be a, a cheating answer to say that sitting at Wembley or Stade de France or the Olympic Stadion, which is a game, I guess, organised by the home the home team. So sit at Wembley and, and think, wow, I've done all of this would be probably cheating because that's a game organised by the English FA and they're the ones that have filled out Wembley Stadium. So I think some of the games, that the, the neutral games, because a lot of the games that we do is Brazil versus Argentina in Melbourne. They're probably the, the, the right answers there. So the Brazil-Argentina games that we've done in, in Saudi, in, in China and in Australia have been quite amazing. You know, to sit in, in Melbourne in front of 100,000 people to think that, you know, we have brought Brazil and Argentina all the way to Melbourne to play in the MCG and there's 100,000 people in here. That was quite an incredible moment. It really was. Um, but there's been some, you know, the, the games that we've done in Miami, quite amazing. You know, I think uh, one of the Brazil players after a game that we did in Miami against uh, Colombia said it was, he kind of felt like he was playing in the Super Bowl with the show that the guys put on there. So... Yeah, there's been there's been a few, and I think you know, somewhere along the way, every every Brazil game that we do is has got some some special ingredients about it because of because of the effort that goes into it. Really, it's it's quite amazing. Sort of when you get there, uh, it, and it all comes together, it, it's extremely satisfying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and how many games in total have you done? You personally done with the Brazilian so football we're up team? To fifty-eight. Fifty-eight. There must be a couple of stinkers in there. Any stinkers that you've gone? Oh, that wasn't as good as I thought it was going to be, or. I guess before Copper America 2016, uh, for a variety of reasons, we ended up doing a match Brazil versus Panama in Denver. Um, and I think about 13,000 people came in. So I would have thought you, 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 can, you, can, you can think to yourself <laughs> that that isn't something that works within our, our p and what, what is the next move for the Brazilian and yourselves regarding you've got a 10-year contract, you've got two years to go. Are you going to look to renew it, do you think? Or was it one of those kind of, we've done the world or? 
I think at the moment there's, I guess, a lot of uncertainty around football and football scheduling. Um, certainly, processes of international football and qualifying for the next the next World Cup, which is, you know, I guess, in just over two years, takes a bit of precedent for everyone's focus now. But you know, we've worked with Brazil for ten years, and, and as I said, we we're kind of an extension of their operation. We're, we're certainly, I guess, their their eyes and ears outside of South America. Uh, we act for them a lot in regards to any business that they want to do outside of South America. So I think there's a, there's a, there's a we've, we've forged a natural partnership with them. And um, so there's a natural discussion of renewal. Um, you know, and I guess it's a, it's a great project. I don't think there's another project that you could compare it to. I don't think that sporting organizations, the size of the Brazil national team offer out their rights to sort of, to, to, to be sold really. And to, to, to have the opportunity to work with them has been, has been great. I'm, I'm sure we'll look to, to renew that. And there must be some really fun stories you've got as well in terms of you must have been on private jets. You've been on private jets with the boys playing cards? Yeah, we I guess we between match one and match two. See an international period is always is always two games. So between venue one and venue two, we're always on a private charter, you know, which are fun. I think some of the most interesting ones are when we used to do games, when we do games in the US, when we've got a rush to bring the players back. We used to bring all the European players back on a private jet which is basically sort of seven or eight guys from pitch international with 12 players from 12 Brazilian players going back into Europe and, and kind of no one else on the plane. So they've always been a uh, fun times. Mate, that is quality. What about some after parties you've done? There must be some good after parties around the world you've done. Definitely, in fact. Yeah, well, the, 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 the players are, all, are always at it. I must say, certainly when they get there, <laughs> what have you. Uh, will we try and kind of leave them to it, to be honest. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I leave the players too. What, what about you? Love a cheeky party, didn't you? Hey, every so often, yeah. <laughs> I used to. I feel like I'm. I've finally started to feel like I'm getting old now with mid thirties and three kids at home. So it's uh, yeah. But I, you know, I still travel a lot with work, so I, I get my I get my chance here and there. Tell us about. So you've done the Brazilian thing. Have you had any other projects on the side while you are not on the side, but actually any other projects you've been involved in within pitch that's away from the Brazilian football team? Yeah, so we work. We've, we've done a lot of games with the England team. Um, not for a couple of years now, since some of the rights within UEFA were, were centralised. But we we used to work on. We did work on probably four or five big England matches. We did their training camp before the 2014 World Cup in Miami, and that was a really good project. We worked closely with the Argentinian national team as well, which complements our Brazil rights because we we create that annual Brazil Argentina fixture. Uh, we work with a, a tournament in the south of France called the Toulon Tournament, which is a oh, yeah. invitational tournament, which has got mm. a really rich history. I think it's in its 49th year this year, uh, which wow. is, you know, it's a really, really, you know, well-run and, and, and sort of well-thought-of youth invitational tournament. Uh, and we, we also had an event that we, that a, a pitch-created event called Star Sixes that was staged in London in 2017 and then again in Glasgow in 2019. That was a, a legend six aside uh, format, I guess, bringing back the old, I guess, bringing back in a new form, the old Masters football that everyone used to see on, on, on TV. Yeah, I remember. I remember. And that was a, a really interesting project. We we sort of took our, took, took our hands to a bit of player recruitment and decided which teams we wanted to and which players we wanted to bring in. And, and we put on sort of four days of action at the O2 Arena in, in, in June 7, July 17. And that was a, a really different, you know, a very different event than, than a Brazil match. I think we, we certainly realised within that that selling Brazil around the world is, is a lot easier than selling, 
you know, a new competition that, that isn't sort of a, that doesn't resonate as well as the Brazil national team does. But again, it was a, an amazing, amazing um, event. It was really interesting, you know, good to be involved in sort of an indoor event because uh, I guess it has so many different dynamics to a, you know, I guess a, a football stadium is built predominantly and specifically for football matches, you know, working somewhere like the O2, which is generally just a, a you know, a multi-purpose venue built for anything and everything. It was, uh, it was quite interesting and, and a, re- a good project to work on in building the O2 into a, into a football pitch and bringing in all these teams from around the world, these players from around the world and putting them into to teams that we kind of created and, and, and and putting them up in London for four days and you know trying to put on a really good event really it was a, a good project as well mate awesome mate and was it did you did you actually bring did you bring the pitch in the Astro pitch did you bring the players in did you have to pay the players how, how did it work how did the business we had model to, work we had to pay you know costs and fees for the players we had to we did about a six month consultation with various different pitch manufacturers to work out how it would work and lay and, and, and what the build would be like on the floor of the O2 uh, we had, you know, we had to build sort of four extra dressing rooms at the O2, hospitality areas, and kind of turn the O2 into a, a football facility. Have medical rooms, physio rooms, kit rooms. Uh, so, you know, it's a, as I said, the O2 is a, a blank piece of paper really for event organisers and promoters. And I think what we did was really quite, quite quirky in terms of turning it into an indoor football facility. And who saw the opportunity there? Was that another opportunity? You thought, right, I want to do our own event now. I want to own the IP rights. I want to build this over five, six, seven, eight years. What, what, what was, what was the thought process behind it? I think, I think owning IP was certainly a driver. Uh, Pitch is a is a company that's worked, you know, predominantly in in selling selling rights, uh, acquiring and selling rights. And I think the opportunity there was to was to build IP ourselves and to own our rights outright. Um, uh, and, I, and I guess also look at that new form of football. Um, you know, a lot of sports now have tried or, you know, operate different formats of, 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 of spare sport. And I think with football, you know, Masters back in the late 90s, early 2000s was a was a really big success. It used to, you know, it used to get fantastic viewing. It was good for sponsors and what have you. And I think our idea was to bring it back in a, in a different format and change some of those, you know, I guess the, the perception of Masters was that it was legends of, Everton, Liverpool, Manchester United, and it was you know much older guys running around a, a plastic pitch with with those you know those perspex glass panels. Yeah, and I remember. It was more of a, a free flowing format, a green pitch, you know, proper. You know, the, the, some of the, the the guys that we had in Star Sixes, you know, Roberto Carlos, Rivaldo, Steven Gerrard, Del Piero. These are you know, Poyol, you know, real European household names. So our idea was to put them all on the pitch and try and create a, a really competitive environment and. And see if it works, and I think from a from a footballing and competitive you know, concept, it was it was amazing. The, the players, I think, you know, were, I, I think you know, I still to this day think they all turned up thinking this is a, a four day jolly in London. And I think after sort of two minutes on that pitch, they were looking around thinking there's a there's a proper game and there's people watching us playing here. We need to put a good account of ourselves up. So you know, the, the, the format was good, um, and then as I say, as an, as an event, it was good. It was. It was difficult in terms of marketing and the PR and to try and, I think, to make anything resonate in London um, generally is really difficult. You're competing against so much, so many events, so many ticketed events, so much entertainment. I think that was our biggest challenge in trying to make a real splash around what we had done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And did you obviously, when you come up with the idea or the concept of that, what month did you come up with the idea and how long did you have until you could put that event on? We probably worked on it for about a year uh, in advance of the event, and probably 
probably only pressed the go button about six months before. We should have put us, you know, I guess up against it straight away. We had, you know, I think five days, the o- five sessions at the O2 across four days is best part of 100,000 tickets. It's a lot of, a lot of inventory to sell. Um, so we had six months and, you know, I guess we, we gave it a good, a good shot. And, and as I said, we delivered you know, a really good event, which, you know, flowed into event two in Glasgow in, in, in 2019. So when you come up, when you come up with that first event, at that event, at the start of the event, you're thinking, great, we've got TV, we've got all the players here. What sort of, what sort of wedge, what sort of money would you, were you paying the players back then to just to turn up, to guarantee you got those household names? It was, it was you know, interesting. It was really, really variable. Some of the players were, to an extent, just happy to be selected and, and to be there. And some of them we were paying, you know, de- decent numbers to. I can't, I can't certainly go into it, but we were paying, you know, some of those top, top players. They, they certainly still know their value in a football market. Yeah, 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 yeah. And what they, I would imagine they've got to be no less than 50 grand, up to 100 grand per player. Obviously, you can't say, um, but I would imagine it'd be around that sort of number just to guarantee the names, you know? You know, in the, in the ballpark, yeah. You know, as you say, some, you know, you, you can imagine someone like Roberto Carlos and Rivaldo, they, they don't <laughs> jump on a plane to London and play four days of football with, with, with supporters for, you know, a couple of pounds here and there. Yeah, 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 yeah. Did, they, did you think some of them turned up thinking, oh, it could be a bit of a jolly and actually... When they turned up on the pitch, they, a couple of players were getting smashed and elbows flying around. And yeah, definitely, I think the, the team we had from Denmark, which you know the household names were not similar to that of the French team or the Brazil team or the Germany team, and they were a uh, you know discipline. They'd been training, and you could see the difference. Those guys knew how to play sort of small sided football, whereas you know the Brazilians and, and, and the Italian teams and the German team, and they were there. It was kind of like you know let's just you know go out there and do what we do, and they they found it tough. It was it's tough, you know. As, as everyone knows, playing playing five aside, six aside football, it's it's not easy. You get found out yeah. pretty quickly, and you need to you need to be fit to get up and down a, a small football pitch. Definitely. What's the capacity? What was the capacity there? Amount of tickets you could sell for one session or one day? Just under twenty thousand. Twenty thousand. What sort? How much was it per ticket, roughly? We were about just just over thirty pound a ticket. Thirty quid. And looking back, do you think thirty quid was the right price? Too expensive? Too lit? Too too little? Or Probably a bit expensive. Uh, probably a bit expensive. We could have probably put some more packages together. As I said, it's you know one of the things that we sort of jumped into is the, the the packaging element of five sessions and family tickets and what have you. You know, once you get into the the functionality of putting all of that on sale, you need to you, you know there's, you need to have quite a dynamic ticketing system. Whereas our determination was just to to get ourselves away on sale. But it was probably a tad on the expensive side. But it was it's reasonable. You know, I think our view was that you're seeing a you know, I think for one session, it was two and a half, nearly three hours of, of content, which is a lot. You think what you pay to go to the theatre or to a, a sporting event, you know, it's usually sort of 90 minutes to two hours. So the, the content was high. Um, and, you know, as far as we were concerned, I think as most were concerned, the talent was great. You know, you don't get to see Steven Gerrard and, and, and Del Piero and, and Robert Perez. You don't get to see these guys play football anymore. So to see that live was quite unique. Mate, I, I think 30 quid's a good price. I think it's a really good price, great value for money, especially see those old boys back, but not even, they're all fit as, fit as fiddles still, aren't they? Certainly they're, they certainly yeah. don't lose their fitness. What was the thought process of saying, are we going to repeat this next year to say, no, we're not going to repeat it next year? What was that? What was the thought process behind it? So we, 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 we had some really good discussions at different venues around the world. It's a, you know, still to this day, it's a, an event that creates really, really good interest when it went. Whenever we're talking to sort of venues, uh, promoters, and what have you, 
everyone's always interested in it. The concept is great. Um, so we looked at various different models. We we really wanted to we 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 really wanted to get an event away, sort of you know, in the year after the, the event we did in London, and we decided that Glasgow was a was a good place to take it. We we had a good deal with, with the venue in Glasgow. Uh, we changed the format slightly away from the twelve international teams, and we did a, a home nations tournament plus a, a, a rest of the world team. Um, so the format was slightly slightly different, and we sort of went big on the the rivalry of Ireland, Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales, and England. We had a, a Europe team captain, a world team captain by Robert Pires, who was the captain of the winning team in two seventeen with France. So we, we changed the format, and it was it was you know really well received in Glasgow. You know they're they're crazy on football there, and and, and it, it did really well. They were they were you know the tendencies across the three sessions that we did were decent, uh, and I guess now the focus is. You know, I guess we will have certainly missed this year because of because of because of all, all things with the pandemic. But you know, ideally, we'll find a venue and a partner for for twenty twenty one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good luck to you. So I think it's a great concept. What sort of sponsors did you have on board for that year? Uh, we had, I think, our, our, our title sponsor was BetSafe, uh, a betting brand. They were our title partner. But we had a variety of different other. You know, we had Umbro, we had uh, EA Sports. We had uh, you're, test, you're testing me now. We had twelve sort of decent sponsors, and we yeah, had yeah. each of the team shirts were all sponsored by brands that sort of had association with those national teams. We had some Italian sponsors that were, 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 were sponsoring the Italian team shirt and what have you. So we had a from a sponsorship portfolio across our sixes. It was it was, a, it was really good. Yeah, and I guess those sponsors thought fantastic. I can rub shoulders with all these world class players for like four days. The access, the broadcast footprint was really good. You know, Sky Sports showed all five sessions in London and, and in Glasgow. The free session, so there's really good brand exposure. And you know, certainly that association with players is, you know, it's expensive stuff nowadays to, to, to you know to sponsor Premier League teams or top European teams is really expensive. When you know one of the key objectives there is the association with the, the players. So it's uh, you know they they were all they were all sort of well invested and I think you know got good value. Yeah. Amazing. And then, so let's go back to the Brazil team. You've got two more years left on the contract. What games are lined up? Obviously, there's a load of games that have been obviously cancelled due to the C19, which is a proper pain in the backside, as we all know, in the events world. What have you got lined up then? Is it all focusing on 2021 now to finish the last year of the contract? Or Yeah, so we, we were meant to have two games in the US in June just gone. We were meant to do a really, really good game with Mexico and Chicago, which, you know, doing a Doing any Mexico match in the US is 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 one of the best sporting events around. You know, there's, really, there's so many Mexicans in the US. When the football team comes out, it really is a, a Mexico home match in the middle of a you know a big one of those big NFL stadiums in the US. So we'd like to try and get that game rescheduled for next year. Um, near the game, we were going to do a Brazil versus Jamaica match in in Florida. Um, so we'll we'll work hard to see if we can get that rescheduled as well. And I guess a lot of the focus will become preparing. Uh, Brazil's preparation for the World Cup in Qatar, um, so there'll be a real focus for, from them to play. You know, their, you know, for Brazil, their objective is always to play those top European teams: so England, France, Belgium, Spain, Portugal, Italy, Germany. And I guess yeah. added a bit of a blend of some of the games that work really well for us. You know, we, as I said, we're we're always keen to try and deliver our annual Brazil Argentina match, um, and, and, and I guess just you know try and take Brazil to some interesting and exciting places. Before before the World Cup, I'm sure there'll be some some um, determination to get Brazil into the Middle East uh, as good preparation. 
for playing in Qatar for, for, for four weeks in December, November and December 22. Wow, wow, wow. I've got a cracking idea, in fact. How's about bring the Brazil football team down to sunny Bournemouth? Well, we've done straight. We know we've done not, not a stranger thing, but we've, we've taken Brazil to Milton Keynes. We did a Brazil versus Cameroon match at Milton Keynes a couple of years ago, which you might say is a crazy idea, but we wanted to do a... We, we, we had them playing Uruguay up at the Emirates and we wanted to do a second game in the UK and Milton Keynes sort of, you know, seemed like, a, seemed like the perfect venue. So... You know, we could take them to Bournemouth. Who knows, mate? You've got my mobile number. I'll sort it out. I'll speak to the speak to the club, and we'll get Brazil down. It'd be amazing, wouldn't it? Absolutely, it's it's an unbelievable stadium. It holds eleven thousand people. Hasn't really been improved for about thirty years, but we've got a cracking chairman. I'm sure we could fill it. Happy days, mate. I've really, really thoroughly enjoyed uh, this chat. I think everyone who's going to listen to this is going to thoroughly enjoy. It. You've got some story. You've got some. I'm sure when we finish. Here, we're going to pick up the phone. I want to get some proper nitty-gritty stories out of you when we stop recording. But, um, yeah, just to finish off, is there any questions you'd like to ask me? I guess an easy one. I guess having, you know, organised best part of 70 events in eight years, ranging from Star Sixes to Brazil, I guess in comparison to the world that you work there, there are events on a much smaller scale in terms of size uh, in regards to you know, duration, duration of how long they're, they're on for. You know, I guess a football match comes and goes and everyone's in and out within the space of a few hours. You're used to events that go on and on and on. What do you think, you know, how, how do you think that changes the planning and the implementation of an event, having having such a larger window that your event lasts? Yeah, I think, I think good question. In fact, I think having, well, it, the pressure's on us, really. We put, we host a, obviously a festival, 30,000 people. We've got three days of the whole year. So you build up, 362 days for three days of the year. So it's a highly risky uh, business to be in. But, you know, it's very different, I guess, for you with no risk. As a you personally, your risk is to make sure the events are all fantastic. But your personal, there's no personal risk to you, I guess. Whereas for us, it's myself and my wife, the actual risk is in all your money's in. And then you're just praying that event goes on that weekend. It doesn't rain. Well, especially COVID doesn't happen and you're praying that the weekend goes ahead all smooth, that you can get paid on the Monday morning, the day after your festival, so you can go again for the following year. So the two kind of the same business models, but two very different at the same time, I guess. I guess I've got another question now, because I, was, I, was, I, know, <laughs> I guess from my own experience, you know, I guess my my sort of way of working in and around our event, our, our match days has changed. I I guess when I first started out for the first few years, I'd be sort of, you know, mic'd up and running around the stadium, uh, you know, as fast as I could and probably did sort of three or four laps of the stadium. Whereas now, <laughs> I guess a little bit more relaxed and there's others running around and I try and stay a bit more stationary. But what are you like across those three days? What are you doing? Um, I'm full on. Mic- mic'd up, uh, radio mics, dealing with 150 security, 800 staff, 12 different festival arenas, making sure all the DJs are on, making sure everyone's safe, making sure the campsite and the glamping and, and the 30,000 people are having a brilliant time and making sure they come in safe and make sure, more importantly, they all leave safe. So it's a full-on, full-on 72 hours and you literally, your feet at the end of it are aching, killing. There's, you there's, must a, good have walked document, there's a good documentary in that, isn't there, following you around three days in, in your festival? <laughs> I'm not sure I'd want to be followed around for those three days, mate. You should see it on the campsite after dark. And it's been an absolute pleasure, buddy, chatting to you. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Wicked stories. And I'd love to get you back on the show on another date. Sounds good. You're a gentleman. Take care.